Well, one of the responsibilities of being a, a pastor, a senior shepherd, uh, is the responsibility to not only teach and inform, but also to protect, to protect the body of Christ. The Bible uses the example in many places of, of we're all sheep, and I'm a sheep also. But sheep need a shepherd, and Jesus is the shepherd of the church. But He has under-shepherds, which He appoints, and their responsibility is to feed the sheep, to lead the sheep, but also to protect the sheep. And so this morning there's something that's just on my heart. It's something that, um, that I, want to, I want to speak to for that purpose. We live in a time when, like no other generation, there is information available. I mean, even the point that if I say something, you can sit there and check on your phone whether I'm right or not. That's, an, that's a daunting thing for a pastor, uh, to make sure I'm right. And, and, and I, I'm not encouraging you to do that because I want you to listen to the Word. But we have information available to us 24 hours a day from all kinds of sources. And, and there's a responsibility that goes with that because we have to learn to discern what's truth from error. And just because something's on the internet, just because something pops up on your phone, just because something's on television, doesn't mean it's truth. Not only that, it can be truth, but it doesn't mean it's truth you need to listen to. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. So I want to begin by, by reading a scripture, and I want to go through this in the New Living Translation, because it just says that in, in a, this is why the church, this is, this is one of the purposes of the ministry grift. We're going to pick up in Ephesians 4, verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work. Notice His work to equip God's people for the people to do His work and to build up the church, which is the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come into such a unity in our faith and knowledge of the God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. Notice it takes two things. It takes unity of our faith and it takes the, knowledge, the unity of the knowledge of God's Son, which is why we talk about Him so much. And that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then, once we begin to reach this mature standard of Christ, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of His body, the church, which makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy, and growing up and full of love. In those, five, in those verses contains what the church is, when we gather together, what we are to do for each other, and what, one of the reasons why we meet. The ministry gifts, the five gifts that are listed there, are intended by God to equip His people to do His work and to build up, that means in strengthen and make larger, His body, which is the church. And the goal is to do that through bringing the church to a place of unity of faith. Not unity of agreement. We'll never all agree with one another. 
but unity of faith, which means we're all pointed in the same direction. We're all pointed in the same direction. I heard this explain, I read this explained beautifully in a little article by E.W. Tozer. He says, you know, we think unity means everybody's got to do the same thing and think the same thing. He said, but think of an orchestra. In a symphony, symphonic orchestra, you've got different instruments playing different notes, but they're all playing it in harmony with one another to produce one sound under the direction of one director. And he knows how it all fits together as the composer had originally intended. So unity of faith means we all have one heart going in one direction with one commitment. That's important for what we're going to talk about today. And the second thing is that we are to grow in the knowledge of God's Son. And as we grow in these two things, it will mature us in the Lord. And maturity in the Lord means learning, growing into such a place where together especially we, we, we are witnesses of His nature and His life. Literally God's will for you is to transform you into the image of His Son. And you may look at yourself and look at that and say, That ain't going to happen in here. I know myself too well. But you don't know God that well then. Because the Bible said, we learned this on Wednesday night. You need to get Wednesday night's message if you were here. For God is at work in you. Both to will and to do His good plan. God is at work in you. I discovered early on when I became a Christian. I had no idea what I was doing when I got saved. I just gave my life to the Lord. I didn't know what that meant. I just, and then I found out later that meant I didn't have to go to hell. That was a good start. And I kind of figured, well, that was what it was all about and began to notice there were things, changes taking place in me. Things I'd wanted to do before I didn't want to do anymore. Things that I used to do by habit and thought I had a right to do, now I don't want to do them anymore. I remember going to the liquor cabinet because I enjoyed my drink when I came home at night. And I remember with my kids, taking my kids over to, the, over to my liquor cabinet, taking every bottle, and some of it was expensive stuff, taking it over to the, to the sink and pouring single malt, down the tubes and I, nobody told me I had to do that the desires inside of me changed and I poured it out I wanted my kids to see it because I wanted them to know the change that took place in me Amen. other things that I began had done by habit I began to have a different desire so when I, what's going on inside of me and then as I began to read God's word I realized he was at work in me and see I invited him in just to fix up one room Because I had a mess in a corner of one room. I just, you know, Lord, I need, I need you to come in and fix this mess up. But, but he had bigger plans. He wanted to clean the whole house out, just what we saw in that video. He wanted to muck me. <laughs> I was mucked. Ripped the walls down. Then I discovered he wanted, to, he wanted to expand me. He wanted to enlarge my life. And so God is at work in us to do these things. And this is what this is all about. So, but, but then we go on to notice, look at this. As a result of maturing, Paul says, as a result of maturing, we will no longer act like children. That means we were acting like children, and, and we are to some extent acting like children. But, but it's interesting, Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, and I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. I used to have this image that when I became grown up, I didn't have any childish attitudes, any childish desires, any childish habits. And I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> but I discovered we all do. But a mature person puts them away when you realize them. So maturing in the body of Christ means we'll no longer... When we're maturing, we're no longer acting like a child spiritually. Now, we're to be childlike, but not childish. 
A child is self-centered. Everything's about me, my mind. Did, how did they look at me? How did things happen to me? I didn't get what I want. They have something I want. It's my toy. They took my toy. She took my toy away from me. It was my toy. We fight over toys. We get mad at each other. They go pout. Sounds like church. But we're to mature. When, when, when we mature emotionally, we begin to realize we have responsibilities that are beyond ourselves. We have responsibilities in our family. The family doesn't resolve or revolve around me. I'm just part of something larger, and I am to contribute to that as well as get the benefit out of that. And then we realize as we mature that things are more based on what we can do for other people than on ourselves. Another, another, another sign of a child is we're easily distracted. Children are easily distracted. You give them to clean up your room, and next thing you know, they're playing with something in the room. They, not because they were bad, they just got distracted. So one of the signs of childishness, and we did a series, uh, I think it was earlier this year, on, on growing up. Another thing we see in here about childishness is we're easily influenced by things that sound true. And we're going to see this morning, they may, there may be truth in them, but they distract us from what we're supposed to be doing. A child with a responsibility to clean up the room. The parents send you in the room. Your job is to clean the room up. It's Saturday morning. Clean up your room. They get in there and they start playing with their toys they're trying to found in the back of the closet. And they start playing with it. That, that toy is truth. But it distracts them from what they were supposed to be doing. So when we're immature, when we're not fully mature, we get easily distracted. And the point of today's message is so we realize that can happen to us and get a sense of what is that truth that we get distracted from and we lose our perspective on so that we know what to be called back to. So when we're maturing, what will we be like? Well, it says we do this by speaking the truth in love, which is what I'm endeavoring to do this morning. And as a result, we will grow up in every way more and more like Christ. What we're going to focus on today is the part of this teaching that says that we're... Today we're going to look at the winds of teaching or doctrine that can blow us about. And we call this... This is a, just a single message, the winds of doctrine. That's the best picture we could find. It looks like a ship that's, that's storm-tossed. And I really wanted to get something that was more gentle that shows how easily we can be blown off track. But it shows a ship being tossed about by the waves. And the image that Paul's writing here is that we can have teachings and doctrines that end up tossing us about, and we don't even know that's happening. Because that ship's having trouble getting to its destination because the storms, the the winds and the waves are are blowing it off course. I've never been a pilot, but I learned from pilots that, that, that when they, 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 before you ever get in that plane, the pilot and the, and the chief navigator, they've set a course. There was a course set. They're supposed to go from Providence to, to Atlanta. There is a predetermined course that they set for that, and that's plugged into their computer. So that when they get up in the air, they have a goal. They know they're supposed to get to the airport in Atlanta, and there's a course that's been set for them. But winds can blow, unexpected winds can blow, and blow them off that course. So there's an electronic device in that plane, it's probably well beyond that. Now, that will, it used to be called TACAN, which will send off a signal that when they're on course, and then when they get off course, it's a different signal. 
And again, it's much more sophisticated now, so it may be very different. But what we want to do this morning is learn to build in us that tack hand, spiritual tack hand, so we know what the sound should be like if we're on course and we begin to recognize the sound that's different when we start getting blown off course. Because you don't want to discover you're off course when you end up in Chicago. When you're starting to come down and you notice snow in the ground and you thought you're supposed to go to Atlanta, that's too late to find out you're off course because it's a way out of way to go back to Atlanta and you've got a bunch of unhappy passengers that are not happy they end up in Chicago when they were planning to be in Atlanta. So we can be blown, we can, winds, unexpected winds can, can blow us off course or boats. I had a, years ago, a number of years ago, my son and I, Chris and I, bought a, we bought a boat together, which means I paid for it. <laughs> it was his idea and I paid for it. So we did it together. I, I was happy to do it. Wonderful time together. But I remember the first time, one of the, we used to put it over a, a bike through a, a, a boat ramp. But one year I just, I'm tired of doing boat ramps. So I, I, I rented a, a boat slip near us. And so we, we launched the boat and we had to bring it in there. And in, in the river we were bringing into was a, was a swift current and it was a windy day. And I'm lining this boat up to go down this little narrow path and the current's rushing this way and the wind's rushing with it and I'm trying to line this thing up. And it's very hard because I know where I want to get to, I know where I have to get to, but the wind's blowing me and I, I can't tell the number of times I had to circle back around and come back around to do that because the wind was trying to blow me, of course. So what we're going to learn this morning is there are spiritual winds that come to blow us as Christians off course. Spiritual winds that come to blow us off course. Paul's referring here to teachings that come into the body of Christ from time to time that are intended, they're purposely designed to get the body of Christ, <laughs> the, the body of Christ distracted and off of our designated assignment. Remember, we are not called and put here just to live our lives. I'm going to say that again. We are not called as Christians. You were not born. You were not then born again just to go from the cradle to the grave and live a good life. You were and I were put here with a God-ordained purpose. And as we've been learning in the series we just finished... On, on eternity, there will come a time when we stand before the Lord and give an account, did you do what I put you there to do? And how we live in eternity will be determined by how faithful we were to do what God assigned us to do here. And so we need to look at our life not as just a life to live and enjoy, but a purpose that God has given us and ordained us. Now Satan, the enemy of our soul, knows that better than we do, so he could not get you from being saved, so what he will try to do is get you off course. And if we don't understand this, we can become easily distracted, thinking this is a good thing I'm tracking down and chasing down, not realizing it's drawing me away from why God put me here. Drawing me away from why God put me here. I've shared this before, but earlier this year when we were going through a time of fasting, one of the wonderful young men of our, of our church young guy, 22 years old, came. He grew up in this church. He said, I want to ask you some questions, Pastor. And I spent some time with him. He said, you know, I'm 22. I'm going to live my life. Can you give me any wisdom? And I thought about it for a moment. I said, yes. This is what I've endeavored to do. I plan to live my life by starting looking at the end 
What is the end result I want? Well, I want to stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So now I've tried to govern my life so that at the end I reach that goal. So I know my goal. I don't always know how to get there, but I know, I know the goal. And so this is what Paul, the image that Paul is trying to give us. We're going to look today at what our assigned course is, what that signal is to stay on course, and the kinds of things that can distract us. So I want to make two preliminary statements before we get into this, into this study. The first statement is this. It's not my purpose to debate about the merits of any of these teachings. And this is one of the things we get sucked into. Somebody will come up and say, you know what, I just saw this on the internet. Well, I think that's crazy. I don't think... Then you start debating the merits of it. And the moment you start debating the merits of it, you enter into it. Because the purpose that Satan brings these things to us is never to teach us truth. Satan uses truth as a weapon, but he will never speak truth to you. You see the difference? This is a terrible example. I'm a dog lover, so don't write me letters. That's the only one I can think of right now. If somebody, I'll use if some, if you have a, 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 an animal, a wild animal that's trying to destroy your property, one of the things I'm not recommending it, so don't, Peter, don't send me animals, is to poison them. But they don't put poison in, 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 in plastic food. So you don't put a piece of steak out there, plastic steak, and paste poison on it because they're not going to be attracted by something that's obviously fake. What they take is something real, real food, and put the poison... i got a better example. Thank you, Lord. Forget that one. Erase it. Back up. I don't want to spend too much time to go through this story, but when we moved my mother down here out of her retirement home to, 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 to live with my son and daughter-in-law for a while and then ended up in a nursing home, she had this big black cat, Midnight. And in the wall problem was, how do we get Midnight, which was, had been a stray, in a big carrier and on a four-hour drive? So my wife went to a vet and said, what do we do? She said, well, what you do is you take, a, there's a tranquilizer I can give you, and you give it to the cat, but you don't just hand this tranquilizer to the cat, because the cat's smart enough to not eat the tranquilizer because it doesn't recognize it. So you put the tranquilizer in a piece of real food. Is that a better example? So the cat will eat the real food, not realizing that in the real food is what's going to put the cat to sleep. And it worked, because when I came here, the cat was just... (laughs) Some of you are being tranquilized. Oh, Lord. By something that tastes real, feels real, smells real, and looks real, but you don't recognize what's really in it, and it's real purpose because that my daughter-in-law gave her the cat because they came in first gave the cat this thing and the cat ate it freely thinking it was all it was was just this piece of treat not realizing what was in the treat in this case we were doing it for the cat's good in our case as believers it's not being done for our good okay that's the first thing not to debate it because the point is is it distracting me from what I'm here to do Is it a distraction? The second thing, basic principle, is that these distractions have always been here. Satan's, there's nothing new. Satan's always used these against the church. Goes way back, Jesus in the book of Revelation writes a letter, has John write a letter to seven different churches. And in there, there are a number of these doctrines that have come against the church right from the beginning. 
One of them is that one of them is the um, is the is the doctrines of Baal, which was to compromise. But it was a teaching that was intended ultimately as effect to get them to compromise. And the other is a teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know quite what their teaching was, but right away Satan uses a weapon to pull the church off track by bringing in teachings and doctrines that are intended to draw them away from what we're going to talk about today. Paul addressed the doctrine. Most of his letters are addressing indirectly a doctrine that was coming in to the church, which was the Judaizers, who were trying to teach them, yes, I know, I know Christ is the Messiah, but you can't throw the law out. You've got to obey the law and worship Jesus as the Messiah. So Paul had to address those. The, 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 the Apostle John, in his letter of 1 John, is addressing a major doctrine that was coming to the church near the end of the first century called the Gnostics, or Gnosticism, which was basically a teaching that, that and this all comes from man's reasoning. Man starts reasoning about the things of God, and we add to the things of God. We add our own spin to the things of God. And because it's based around the things of God, it sounds real. It's like the cat's tranquilizer. The Gnostics were believing that the way... Yeah, I don't want to go into the whole basis of it. But they believed that because God is holy, God, God could not actually become flesh. Because God is holy, God could not actually become flesh. Therefore, Jesus really never touched anything. And there's scriptures like in Romans 8 where it says, He came in the appearance of a man. And they would take those to build them out and say, That means He really wasn't a man. And so what, he, actually never, he, he, he appeared to touch things. He appeared to walk on the ground. He appeared, and it shows you how crazy things can get when you begin to take the Word of God. But my point is, that happened, these are four doctrines, and there may be others, that came against the church right away in the first hundred years. St. Augustine, about the fourth century, he had three of them he had to deal with, Manichaeism, Donatism, and Palatianism. And I, I won't get into what they were. Just since I've been a Christian, and I'm sure there have been others, that I, that, that, one of them was numerology. Remember that? Some of you remember that? People, and, and there's truth in numbers. There's certain numbers that have a certain significance. But then they would, take the, they would take number. How many verses are in the book of Isaiah? And we combine that with how many verses in the book of Daniel. And they would come up with these weird theories and what they're all meant. And, all the, and there may be some truth in those numbers. They added up correctly. But what was the effect of it? People would get caught up in that, and when you're caught up in something like that, we become distracted by winds of doctrine. Now, the wind is real, but its purpose in this case is to blow you off, off track. So there's truth in some of these teachings, or else people wouldn't listen to them. Everybody okay? All right. Another one that's become popular, and I still hear more and more every once in a while, is uh, uh, people begin to study other Gospels. Other Gospels. Well, they may have been actually written, but the, what's called the canon of the Bible, which is what's considered the inspired Word of God, has been settled for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the Holy Spirit oversaw that process. So, but when we get caught up in the book of, of Enoch and all those kinds of things... 
It may be okay to read, but just as long as you understand, that can pull you off track. We start getting off on podcasts and teachings that are out there about all these things, and we get excited about them and start chasing after them. The question is, where's it taking you? That's the question. Where is this leading to you? It, 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 am, I, am I no longer hearing that bit, bit, bit that tells me I'm on course? And I, I ought to be hearing now, bit, bit, something is telling me I'm off course. But if you don't know that can happen, you'll follow after because you're, we're sincere. You wouldn't be here this morning if you weren't sincere. You're sincere, but you know you can be sincere and wrong. Every Saturday, the people go into your communities, knocking on doors. And most of them are sincere. But just because they're sincere doesn't mean they're right. You can be sincerely wrong. (laughs) Everybody still okay? Say, I love Pastor John. Okay, I feel better now. Thank you. There are others today. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is one of the last things Paul wrote. And he wrote it to his son in the faith, Timothy. And Timothy was struggling with some things. He was a young man. He was struggling with his identity. He was struggling with people that were criticizing him because of his youth. He was, he was getting distracted at times. Um, he was living in an age that's not unfamiliar, unsimilar to ours. The church was now not being popular. It was starting to be persecuted. And so he was, he was timid at times. And he was, that's why Paul talk, starts out talking about, you know, not, God's not giving you a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and a sound mind. So, for, uh, what did I say? 2 Timothy chapter 4. So here's, here's Paul's instructions to his young son in the faith, a young pastor, of what to do for his, his church to keep them on track. This was his method. I charge you, Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. So this is again what we were talking about over the last several weeks under eternity. That Jesus comes back, He will judge His church for whether we did what we're supposed to do. As a result, He says in verse 2, preach the word. That's the answer. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's not popular, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when people love what you're saying, when people don't like what you're saying, convince, rebuke, we don't hear that a lot in church, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they, he's talking to Christians, Christians living in a world that's not unlike our world, except they didn't have all the internet access that we have. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Stop there a second. This is exploding in me right now. The reason they don't endure sound doctrine is what happens is they either get bored with it, they, they, get, they get, because it's no longer looking, they're no longer seeking after, they're no longer seeking after what they were seeking after before. So they can't endure sound teaching. Because what sound teaching does is sound teaching matures us. Sound teaching confronts our flesh. Sound teaching confronts our mind to think according to the way God thinks, not according to the way we want to think. Sound teaching 
confronts our pride. Sound teaching confronts our arrogance. Sound teaching confronts things about us that are in the way of God transforming us into the image of Christ. So what happens is we start to get off. We don't want to endure the sound teaching. I've had people say, you know, uh, this, church, this church just lost the anointing. That's why I come, but I sit in the foyer because the church has lost their anointing. It's kind of hard to get the anointing in the foyer. <laughs> no, the reason they're sitting in the foyer is they can't endure what's being done in here. So one of the signs that we're starting to get off is I'm having, I don't like that. Not it's not true, I don't like that. I've got some teachers I don't like to listen to. But I make myself listen to them because I'm suspicious of why I don't want to listen to them. It's not because they're wrong, because there's some people out there I think are doctrinally off. That's a different issue. But there's some, because when I begin to really, really listen in myself of why I don't want to listen to this guy, in many cases it's jealousy. Yeah. Well, how, I, could, I can teach what he's teaching. How come I don't have an international program? That's not my business, that's God's business. But see, I don't want to listen because and realize underneath it, it's my pride. I'm jealous. It's my pride. That's, a, that's, that's, I can't endure it. So that's a warning to me. There's something here you need to listen to. I'll make myself do that because I can't allow that attitude to cut off what God wants to do for me. But according, look at this, but according to their own desires. You know you why you don't, let your children, your young children choose, choose your menu for serving food at home? Because they'll choose food according to their own desires. And what are their desires? Their standard is what tastes good. What, what's sweet, what tastes good. And so we'll do that spiritually. We, we, when we get to choose what we're going to listen to, we're gonna, unless we've matured, we're going to listen to what makes us feel good. Not just feel good about ourselves, but it can excite our, our mind, excite our curiosity, excite things in our mind that may or may not be okay, but are they drawing us away from what God wants us to do? I'll give you an example of this. It's not a teaching, but years ago, before I got into this role, when I was the associate pastor, I decided, you know what, I'm a, I'm a teacher, and I love words. Words are what helps me give understanding of what I teach. I want to go back to the original language and learn the Greek. So I got a book, a book on how to learn Greek, and I, I went for a year and a half. Every morning when I would exercise, I would go through this, and I began to learn it. And it began to get so I could actually read some of the passages in Greek. But then I realized what was happening. My devotional life was going downhill. Because when I'd open my Bible, it was no longer to let God speak to me. I was trying to figure out, now let, let's parse that verb. What, what, what tense is that verb? And so what was a good thing in the beginning was pulling me away from what was more vital to me than my mind learning to understand and learn something new. It was pulling me away from my time of devotion with the Lord. So I put it aside. Now I still get some of the value of it because some of my knowledge of Greek words came from that time of study, but I, no longer allow, I don't allow that to happen. Because of their own desires, they will heap up for themselves... Oh, because they have itching ears. Now, we're out of the mosquito season. 
but not that long that you can't remember what it's like to get a mosquito bite. Ever get one in your, somewhere you can't reach and you just, oh, oh, mm, because that itch gets all of your attention to it. And you'll do whatever it takes to satisfy that itch. And that's the image there of ear, itching ears, a desire to hear things that, because there's an itch there that I'm trying to satisfy. It's not an itch in your spirit. It's an itch in your mind. It's to find something that satisfies this itch. And so when you're not mature, you'll follow whatever it takes. I discovered years ago the best way to get a mosquito bite to stop itching is to not scratch it. Am I the only one scratching for that? If you don't scratch, the, la- the last thing you think you can do is resist that, but if you resist it for a few moments, if it's a mosquito bite, after a little while, it stops itching. It stops itching. Itching ears. Itching ears. Next verse. And they turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We learned a long time ago in a series I did, a fable is a a story that man made up to teach a principle that man thinks is truth. But it's not God's truth. So it sounds good. All right, Pastor, what's, what's, what's all this... What's all this mean? What's all this mean? In 2 Timothy 2.23, says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So one of the signs, one of the signs that this is off is, is it generating strife. Now, we can get into disagreement about truth, but am I, am I arguing about this? Am I trying to defend something for my own sake? Okay, so what should our focus be? And how do we know whether something's true or error? What's that mark? What's that tack-in sound? What is it that tells me I'm on course? What's the course I'm supposed to be on? And where, so that I know what it is when I get off. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read this in the, in the New Living Translation also. Verse 1. I hope you will put up a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me. Listen to this. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God Himself. God is a jealous God. Why? Because I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. Stop there a second. I... the. New King James and King I betrothed you. I promised you. The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. That's not just some symbolism. We are married to Him. And He is married to us. That's another, it is an image. That's another image of the union that we have together with Him. When I married Anita 51 plus years ago, I made a vow to her before God, even though we weren't saved, that from that moment on, I would be true to her. She was now the woman that I was joined to, and there could be no other. So that vow meant my heart 
was to be given to her and not to another. And she's not this way, but if she were like this, if she saw me gazing at somebody else and wondered what I'm thinking, she can begin to become jealous. Why is she jealous? Because, and she's not a jealous person, but because I made a commitment to her and it looks as if my heart's being drawn away. Unfortunately, I've had to deal with a pastor with many people that have gotten off, out of, broken their vow of, to their spouse. And it always starts with the heart being drawn away. In most cases, there are a few cases where just pure outright lust. But in most cases where it's sincere, the person, to, I don't know how this happened, is their heart was slowly drawn away from the one they made the commitment to. I remember when I was still a lawyer, I had a wonderful secretary. I mean, she could think for me. She knew just what I needed, and she knew where to stop, and, you know, what I, and it was just wonderful. I don't have time to get into all that. And when you're working closely with somebody like that, you begin to care for one another. And By the way, the, the statistics I've read is the most common place for affairs to begin is between nurses and their patients and pastors and the people that they minister to. Why? Because it all starts out of caring. So there have to be boundaries established. And one day I walk in the office and she looks at me and she says, Boy, you know, John, you look, you look tired. Maybe you should take a rest. And an alarm went off. I don't think she meant anything by it. Wait a minute. You just crossed the line that belongs to my wife. You're caring about me at a level. I find you care, but you're now speaking to something that I should only allow her to speak into. I better, and I did it gracefully. Stop this now. But the point is this. We were married to Christ. We were married to Christ, and therefore we are to have the same devotion to Him that we should have to our spouse and greater. So Paul's talking about here, anything that draws our heart away from our commitment to Christ as our husband of the church, as the one we're joined to, anything that draws our heart away is what pulls us off track. For I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God Himself, because I promised you as a pure bride. Pure means your heart was going to no one else. To one husband, which was Christ. Verse 3. But I fear that somehow your pure and undevotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Verse 4. You happily put up the, whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus. Go back to verse 3. That somehow your pure and undivided devotion, that's the word I want to emphasize, our devotion to Christ. Devotion comes out of our heart. And these winds of doctrine are maybe good ideas, they may be fascinating teachings, but what are they, where are they taking your heart? Are they drawing your heart closer to your devotion, your personal devotion to Christ? Or are they filling your mind up with ideas that you now begin to chase after and you spend more of your time looking at these ideas and listening to these ideas and study, than you do in your devotion to Christ? That's when the sign goes off. And we have to discipline ourselves in this if we're not used to this. 
Because the more you spend in your time with Christ, the more you spend in prayer, the more, and I'm not talking about works in prayer, in your devotion to Christ, the more time you spend in your devotion to Christ, the more you'll know when something's off. I've started to do that at a level I've never done it before every morning. I will, cannot go into my day if I've done that. Because I can't handle my day on my own apart from Christ. To have had some contact with Christ. Just as I, my wife and I need some contact with each other. So that my devotion to Him personally takes precedent over my devotion to the church, my family, or anything else. Why? Because, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So how did this happen? Verse 4. Because you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than we preach. So how do you know if it's a different Jesus? Because you know Him. We've been married for 51 years. I've known her for 52 and a half years. If you tell me something about her, I can tell you whether it's true or not in most cases. I don't understand all of her, but I can tell, I know her character and her nature. And if you said, you know, Pastor, I, thought, I saw Anita coming out of a bar the other day. I said, that's not my wife. <laughs> I don't know who you saw. You can, that thought will not even get in my mind because I know her. I know her. So if you can hear a different Jesus, it's because you don't really know Him. A teacher I respect once was talking about, and I've said this before, somebody came up to him was really, wow, you're so-and-so. I finally get to meet you. He looked at him as really only he can and says, if you're impressed with me, then you really don't know Jesus. Why are we so easily wrong? A Jesus that we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Ephesians 3, verse 8. Let me get that up there. To me, who am the least of all the apostles, Paul writes, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In your relationship with Christ, there are riches that are unsearchable. There's no bottom to them. There's no end to them. In John chapter 4, talking to the woman at the well, he said, I'll give you living water, and when you drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. See, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Okay. Verse 9. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which is the beginning of ages, even Christ, who created all things, even Jesus Christ. Okay. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's in Him. It's not in the teachings about Him. It's not in the doctrines about Christ. It's in Him. It's in our relationship with Him is the truth. In our relationship with Him is the way. In our relationship with Him is the life. Right before this, Paul, uh, uh, Paul, Philip says to Jesus, you said we know the way. How can we know the way? We don't know the destination. How can we know the way if we don't know where it is we're going? Oh, this is so right on. How can we know where we're supposed to get if we don't know the destination? Jesus said, you don't know the destination. I'm the way. You know me. You'll get to the destination. You have a relationship with me that grows every day. You begin to experience how real I am in my love and my grace and my honor and my all aspects of me. Then you'll get there. If you know me, 
You try to get there on your own, you'll get lost. You'll get, but if you know me, if you're growing in your knowledge of me, of your relationship with me, you will get to the right place. St. Augustine in his confessions put it this way. Listen carefully. O oh Lord, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If you're restless this morning, if you're not at ease this morning, if you're anxious this morning, it's because you're not at rest in Him. Not the church, not even your Bible. In Him. Our founding pastor Sam put it a different way. When he hear these things, he said, Are you so bored with Jesus that you're chasing after other things? So we chase after other things because we're bored or lost track of our relationship with Him. Because He so satisfies, He so fills you up, He so meets every need, and He so does, that you can't, you can't be distracted by other things, because they pale in insignificance to Him. And that's the tachan. That's the signal. Because at peace, joy, I'm on the right course. Because He, satis- he satisfies every need. Because we were made to feed on Him and not on other things. I'll close with this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.2. Paul says, I purposed to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, one thing I, I missed. When things are in error, it's because we've stayed chasing after knowledge without love. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, tells us that knowledge alone puffs up but love edifies. It builds up. So one of the questions is, is this teaching building up my love of Christ and my love for my brother and sister? Is this teaching drawing me, giving myself sacrificially to my wife or to my husband? Is this teaching increasing my walk of love or is it distracting from it? Remember 1 Corinthians 13, we didn't, won't put it up there, but Paul talking to the Corinthians who were so immature about how they were bouncing around and they were getting so far off track. He does this teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, which are very real. In 1 Corinthians 12, he outlines them and explains them. 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about some of the specific ones and how they're to operate. But in verse chapter 13, he tells the key. He says, you can do all these things, but if it's not out of love, it counts as nothing. If the teachings you're listening to, if the doctrines you're falling after are not based on love and causing you to grow in your love for God and your love for one another, they count as nothing in God's eyes. They're a distraction. So love, our devotion to Christ, focusing us, equipping us, and strengthening us to finish our course and do what God's put us here to do. Those are the marks that keep us on course. Anything else that pulls us off, it may be truth, but it's being used to pull us off course. I'll end with this quote. John and Charles Wesley, the great founders of the Methodist movement and some of the greatest hymns we have. Their mother was an amazing Christian. And she would sit them down and teach them what sin is. She said, sin is anything that comes into your mind or your heart to pull your heart away from your love and devotion for Christ. Let's pray. Father, today we ask you to help us because outside today in our world that has such access to us, there are many, many, many things that come at us to draw us off. 
many things that are done by Christians and, and are focused by Christians and available by Christians. And because they're Christians, it's so easy for us to say, well, that's okay, that's right. But Lord, that's not how we discern. I pray, Father, that, that as we hear these words, that your Spirit will begin to make us sensitive. First of all, that your Spirit will renew in us a hunger and a desire to know Jesus at a level we've never known Him before. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That, that your Spirit will help us to get our compass straight so that we realize we're coming, Lord, so that we can finish our course. And that is only through Jesus because He's the way. It's our relationship with Him. We thank you, Lord, that you help us to take every step that we learn to take by walking in love and not in ideas and principles. Father, help us, forgive us for where we've gotten deceived, where we've been distracted and pulled off course. And help us to grow and mature. Thank you for your promise that you, through your Spirit, are working us both to will and to do your good pleasure. Amen. Right now we're coming to the most important part of the service. And I'm going to ask, except for those that have to take their place right now, that no one leave the room. Because everything we've talked about so far has been addressed to those of us that are in Christ. Those of us that know that when we leave this earth, this body, we are going to be in the Lord's presence. We've been talking about finishing our course, and, 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 but we know we're going to go there. But this morning, I want to address anybody that may be here this morning that doesn't know that. You don't know for sure that when you breathe your last breath, where your soul and your spirit are going to go. I don't want to be disrespectful, but it doesn't matter what you believe about that. Because it's not based on what you believe, it's based on what God says. And the Bible tells us that there is a heaven to be gained and there's a hell to be avoided and both of those are forever are eternal and right now there may be some here in the sound of my voice and this will be your opportunity to make that choice the way to heaven's narrow it's only through Jesus Christ it's by receiving him as your savior the one that paid for your sins and by putting your life in His hands to be Lord over your life. That's a narrow way, but the good news is it's open to anyone that will come. It's open to you this morning. So if you're here this morning and you've never invited Christ into your life, if you've never chosen heaven, this is your opportunity. You don't know that you'll have another opportunity. This last week, my wife prayed with a woman in the nursing home. She was just prompted to go in and pray with her. The next morning she comes in and this lady's stepped into eternity. And the moment my wife had with her changed her eternal destiny. This moment can change where you're going to spend eternity. It's up to you. If that's you I'm speaking to this morning, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to pray for you, but I need you to let me know by raising your hand. I just want to pray for you. I'm going to help you to receive Christ and to bring Him into your life. I'm going to keep that invitation on the floor. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who said, well, I've done that, Pastor, but I'm not walking with Him right now. I've just kind of gotten out there. And where you've gotten to doesn't matter. What you've done doesn't matter. The only thing that matters at this point is you know this. God's not mad at you. 
You may be mad at him. You may think he's failed you or you may think you failed him. But God, he's never stopped. He's never stopped loving you. And no matter what you've been or done or gotten into, he wants to forgive you, clean you up, and set you back on your walk with him. That's what he wants to do. But you have to take a step of faith towards him. He's not angry at you. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Either of those invitations.